Welcome back to what would most certainly be Beethoven's favorite podcast, Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. I'm Stephanie Brimhall, the Kansas City Symphony's Director of Education and Community Engagement. I'm Mike Gordon, Principal Flute of the Kansas City Symphony. And I'm Jason Sieber, the Associate Conductor. Well, guys, we have, believe it or not, managed to pull off a third complete season here on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. Wow. Well done. I don't know how they didn't cancel us. I thought for sure they'd cancel us after the first episode. Then I thought for (laughs) absolute sure, if not the first episode, certainly by the end of the first season, (laughs) they let the pilot run. They let us stay. We came back for a second season. And I'm a little worried we're going to become the new Friends show or something, and we're going to run for eight or nine years. Who knows? Well, that means, Who knows? <laughs> that means that we'll get to come back for a reunion in 17 years, maybe on HBO. And that also means we'll start making $1 million per episode, each of us individually, like the oh. Friends cast. That would be pretty exciting. <laughs> well, maybe not. But I will say we've had some incredible conversations throughout the past several months uh, with special guests like Larry Ratcliffe, Teddy Abrams, Adam Schoenberg. And some symphony family members as well, like Julian Kaplan and Susie Yang, and inspiring individuals like Father Paul Turner and Alex Espy from our great Kansas City community. We've had deep conversations about uh, juggling, (laughs) NASCAR, football, of course, bourbon, lots of conversations about bourbon. But perhaps most importantly, we've had a lot of conversations about Mr. Ludwig von Beethoven. That's true. And one of my favorite parts of the show always is asking our guests what they would ask Beethoven if they found themselves seated next to him at a bar. It's uh, our version of the question, you know, who would you invite to dinner, dead or alive? Mm-hmm. And it's always fun to hear our guests take in the question and really consider it as though it were actually going to happen. And, you know, we've gotten some really, really interesting answers. And it's it's been incredible uh, the way that conversations have been led by those questions, I think. Absolutely. You know, we've had a lot of fun listening back to all three seasons of Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. And had a great time selecting some of our favorite questions our guest would ask Beethoven. And the first one we're going to go to is all the way back, all the way to season one, episode 13 with Herman Mahari. And actually, uh, just a few episodes ago, Steven Steigman asked a very similar question. But let's hear what Herman wanted to ask Beethoven. You know, I would really be curious to see what he thought of like the fact that a couple hundred years later, his music is timeless. I mean, on a level that you can't even, I mean, how can you even compare it? You know, I I can even imagine for myself what that would be like. I mean, imagine how many people have played his music. So that's what I would ask. So I think that's a wonderful question. You know, I've often been curious what Beethoven would think about his music being so timeless and so popular, you know, 200 years later. Yeah, you know, I think that he probably kind of expected that. He was definitely full of self-confidence. <laughs> and he knew, I mean, Beethoven, let's admit it, Beethoven knew that he was revolutionizing music. He was one of the first composers to come along and say, all right, I don't care what other people think of my music. I know it's great. I'm confident in my abilities, not in an arrogant way, but just in a very self-assured way. And he had to have known, especially when he's writing some of his string quartets and symphonies, that these are real masterworks that are going to last a long time. I mean, I I totally agree with you. And I see, you know, it's certainly he was a very confident man, confident composer. And you're right, knew that he was revolutionizing music. But I think we even talked about this a few episodes ago. Can you really, do you think that anyone's mind 
can really go to being in the public eye, being being famous decades, centuries later? Can can we really actually do that in our heads? Maybe some people can. Mike can. Uh, I, I cannot. And I'm <laughs> quite confident no one is going to be aware of me in 200 years time. But I, I think it's... <laughs> I think it's just interesting to, you know, put your head in the mindset of someone who's creating music at a time when there are no recordings, there are no movies, there is yeah. no radio, you know, so the only way anyone ever heard music up until this point in history was either to play it themselves or for someone else to play it. And I think to uh, to imagine that, you know, someone is going to decide to pick up your music in 200 years and play it. I mean, Beethoven didn't imagine there was any other way for his music to live on except for somebody to pick up the sheet music and play it. Mm. So mm, I, good point. Yeah, I wonder how he thought about that actually. And certainly people in his time, you know, would maybe pick up music from 200 years prior and play it. But I think it, I think it wasn't as common. Certainly. That's a very good point, Mike. I didn't even think about that, but you know, also, I mean, he knew Mozart's music, he knew Haydn's music, he mm-hmm. knew Bach's music, and that music had already survived 50 or 100 plus years, and it was being played all the time, I'm sure, especially Mozart and Haydn's music. So, if he thought that he was just as good as Mozart or Haydn, or better, perhaps, then he must have had some confidence that his music was going to last longer. But that is a really good point, because you're right, he, there weren't recordings, there wasn't anything that we knew for sure that would preserve Music. This actually reminds me of a conversation that I had with my violin teacher once at Baldwin Wallace when we were, uh, I was working on a Bach solo partita, one of the six unaccompanied sonatas and partitas for violin, which are like the Bible for the violin. And there was a note discrepancy uh, between the Baronrider edition and another, all the rest of the editions. And I remember th- playing it the way I'd always learned it in the other editions, and I didn't even notice that it was different in the Baronrider. And he pointed it out to me. And I said, well, surely it's not that note. I mean, Bach wouldn't have meant that. And he said, Jason, do you really think Bach sitting down to write these sonatas and partitas, knowing that this was by far the greatest thing that had ever been written for the violin, do you honestly think he'd be that careless? Especially since he was always super careful Mm. as a composer with, with his manuscript. And I thought, you know, you're right. So if Bach knew that these sonatas and partitas are going to last forever, most likely, I think personally, Beethoven knew that his music was going to be timeless. Mm-hmm. That's just my opinion. You know, I'm curious when we've been talking about Beethoven so much, and it's, you know, I've been listening to a lot more of his music, but I also got a little bit curious to look into where his music has been sampled by other mm-hmm. um, artists and whether those are classical artists or whether they're pop artists, R&B artists. But I mean, his music has been sampled in so many styles of uh, of music from jazz, pop, rock, hip hop, R&B, and by huge artists like U2 and Whitney Houston and Kiss, <laughs> Michael Jackson, I, I mean, Wu-Tang Clan, <laughs> like when you hear Wu-Tang Clan, don't you immediately think like Furry Lease or, you know, Beethoven 5? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> but I think I'm really curious like what you know, because I could sort of wrap my head around, because you're right. I mean, he he knew the music of, of Bach and Mozart. And, you know, so obviously, you know that music will carry on. But I wonder w- what he would think if he were here right now, you know, of hearing his 
melodies in a Whitney Houston song. <laughs> I, I want to hear him. I, I mean, I want to see his reaction to, uh, now I can't remember, is it Mannheim Steamroller or Trans-Siberian Orchestra that did that sort of pop rock version of- A fifth of Beethoven? The disco yeah. one? Yeah. Yeah. You know the one I'm talking about? I can't yeah. remember who uh, who who did it, but, um, but you know, the, it's just so funky and groovy, and yet it is still- all Beethoven. Like, what would he think if he heard something like that? I mean, speaking of recordings, like, none of those instruments could have existed right. in Beethoven's time. None of those sounds, you know, there's no electronic music. Just be amazing. Indeed, indeed. Well, guys, one of my favorite questions that uh, our guests have asked was in season two, uh, the second episode of season two, our good friend Celine Hernandez, who is a fantastic music educator, uh, she's a conductor at Harmony Project KC. And this is what she said she would ask Ludwig von Beethoven. Well, I think I'd want him to have some advice for my students, you know, um, especially since he's, you know, he had a lot going on in his life and had, had to overcome quite a bit. Um, I want him to know, like, what advice would he give students to overcome some obstacles when you face them in life? Good question. I, I really like that one as someone that thinks about um, education and students all the time, along with Stephanie and Mike. What advice would Beethoven give to students to learn how to overcome obstacles. I mean, that's a big part of learning, especially a musical instrument. There's so many obstacles when you're learning music and uh, it's so easy to give up. Yeah. And it is curious to think about what kind of advice Beethoven would give considering all the obstacles he faced in his life, family relationships, his hearing loss, of course, becoming in a deep state of depression about that. Obviously he handled it well. Uh, it was tough for him, but some of his best music came out of those obstacles. I wonder if he would just advise kids very generally, you know, to kind of pour yourself into what you're passionate about, you know, like mm. give yourself over to that because very clearly Beethoven found joy in writing music and he also expressed emotion in writing music. And I think that's certainly a, a place that I think kids today struggle in is how to express feelings and how to express frustrations or, you know, just expressing themselves is hard as a as a human being, but especially in the day, you know, where for the last the last 18 months, we've all been at home, we haven't really, you know, interacted in the same way that we would. And I would think part of that would just be to, you know, find something you're passionate about and really dive in. See, I, I think for him, what's What's so interesting is that, you know, early on in Beethoven's life, he was as much a performer yeah. as he was a composer, you know, if not more so. I mean, really, mm. you know, sort of taking after, uh, in many ways, what Mozart had done. And so I just wonder if, in many ways, the deafness, you know, pushed him to become even more dedicated to uh, to composition than he might have otherwise been. I mean, of course, he was well-established as a composer already anyway, but he was performing so much as well. He was performing uh, many of his own pieces and kind of looking for that fame as a performer as much as a composer. And then, of course, once he became deaf, I mean, really, performance was no longer possible for him, uh, either as a player or a conductor, uh, and he had no choice but to make his way uh, and his name and his living as a composer. Remember these 
you know, names that we know so well, they were making their living as composers. They had to write for nobility. They had to write, uh, you know, for commissions. They had to rely on, on fees from publishers. So it was not just a matter of him expressing himself artistically. That was literally what he needed to do, make a living. And part of his living was gone as a performer. So I just, yeah. I think it's interesting. And it's interesting to think about how his compositions might have been different, not only because he couldn't hear them, but because he would have still been more focused, perhaps, on performing as well as mm. composing. Really interesting. And if we really think about it, most of the great composers have written some of their best work in their most tumultuous times, either in their lives or their countries or what's happening historically. I mean, you look at Shostakovich yeah. or Prokofiev, some of their best music came under really tight restrictions by Stalin's regime. You know, if Beethoven was alive today, he'd probably point out those examples too, or examples of people like Itzhak Perlman, who has overcome polio as a young child to become one of the greatest violinists of the last 100, 150 years. So I, I think he would definitely provide himself as an example and provide examples of several other musicians who have been brilliant under very difficult circumstances. Well, um, Speaking of Beethoven's deafness, you know, for anyone who's ever seen the entirely fictional film, Mr. Beethoven Lives Upstairs, you know, there's this somewhat famous scene where uh, he's, his piano is resting on the floor and he's banging away at it so he can feel what the music sounds like. And uh, our percussionist, Josh Jones, maybe was thinking of that when uh, he asked this question. What does sound feel like to you? Like, I want to know where he heard sound in his body and what every tone feels like. Because that's, that's what I'm always trying to feel or trying to discover. Yeah, what, what does music feel like? I don't know. What, what would Beethoven have said about that? You know, I loved this question when Josh asked it because it was so tied into the conversation that we had had during that entire episode just about, you know, what music meant to Josh and how... You, with Josh, you just really feel like music is a part of him, and uh, his instrument is so physical anyway that it was it was a brilliant question, but it was not at all surprising that he would ask a question about kind of the feel, you know, the feelings, and because I think so much of that Josh lives with, you know, every day in performing, and kind of since then I've thought about that. Jason, you'll you'll know that when we do um, education education concerts in the hall. One of our frequent guest organizations is the Kansas State School for the Deaf and Blind. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, at first thought, you know, why would you bring students who are deaf to, to an orchestra concert? And that's something that, you know, I think is, is really amazing and such a credit to their music teacher that they have over there. But um, these students come and we always save a spot for them in the front row of the theater so that... Um, when they when they arrive and they sit down immediately they'll they'll get there when the orchestra's warming up and they'll all lean forward and put their hands on the stage and it's just this you know whole row of students with their hands on the stage and that's how they're listening to the music um is you know they're listening through feeling because the stage itself uh is an instrument and yeah. certainly in the coffin in in Hellsberg Hall I mean it was designed to serve as you know a, a its own instrument and, you know, with its vibrations and um, sound projections. So watching that has really made me kind of rethink what music is to everyone and what that feels like and, he and sounds like and is 
for everyone, regardless of ability. Yeah. And not to be too scientific or nerdy, but of course, Beethoven could hear, so to say, what he was writing based on those vibrations, because each note, of course, has a different frequency, a different wavelength. And he got used to feeling what the lower register felt like on the piano or what the higher register felt like where you could barely feel the vibrations. It's always interesting, you know, you brought up our stage and every stage, of course, is usually made of wood and is a resonating box. But because we actually have a hollow space underneath our stage, which can be used with the hydraulics lifting up risers, it actually creates even more of like a resonating box, I feel like, than most stages. And I know the cellos and basses in particular, who put their end pins directly into the stage, can feel the vibrations coming back at them through the through their end pins into their instruments. And also, you know, it's interesting as a conductor, I don't necessarily, I, f- I can feel the vibrations in my feet sometimes standing on the podium. I don't necessarily feel it in the air, but there is this energy that music creates that you can feel through the air. And I also remember just uh, being a total music nerd when I was younger, and I loved The Planets by Holst. And I had a great recording. Uh, I don't even remember who it is at this time. It was Montreal Symphony, I think. And I would put on the recording of uh, the Uranus movement. And every time there's that big organ moment, there's a ding, dun, ding, and the organ pedal, boom. Yeah. And my whole car would rumble. And I loved I, I loved feeling that even more than I loved hearing it. So especially when you have a, a great moment in music like that, I think it's super cool to feel the vibrations of the music, not just hear it. I just heard uh, Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. Good, <laughs> good vibrations. Good vibrations. <laughs> that was a good tune. That was a good tune. I don't know if Beethoven would have, he might have liked that tune. Who knows? You know, one of the things I think about too in this conversation, uh, you know, when you're a musician, uh, and you're, you know, you're playing your instrument constantly or you're conducting, or, you know, whatever it is that you do. Part of that process becomes so unconscious, I think. Yeah. And and so for me, and I, I think a lot of musicians would share this feeling as well. When I hear music, uh, especially if it's a, a piece that I've played, you know, Beethoven Symphony or something, you know, as opposed to a pop tune that, that I haven't played, I almost can't help but, you know, move my fingers along with it as if I were playing the flute. And I have to imagine that has something to do or had something to do with Beethoven's, you know, compositional process too, especially when he was dead. I mean, when he was dead, when he was deaf, he has not, <laughs> he has not composed since he died, incidentally. That's amazing. I don't yes. know, know why. Fun fact that I thought I would share today. <laughs> I, I, so I imagine, you know, after, after he was deaf and he never actually became completely deaf, but after he was significantly deaf, I have to, believe that so much of that composition process just had to do with him having that tactile feel of music through the piano. I mean, I have to imagine he could sit at a piano and touch the keys or maybe not even at a piano, just move his hands as if he were playing the piano and in his mind be able to hear what the music sounded like much in the same way that, you know, if I hear a piece of music, I can't not move my fingers along with it as if I'm playing the flute. Well, and I think that's actually, that's really interesting. And I'm glad to hear you say that you also move your fingers along. I do it all the time. And I haven't played my clarinet in almost 11 years, which is really sad. I know. I hope my mom's not listening. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Mike's mom is, but your mom might not. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, but I mean, in, in 10 years of not playing, I still do it. And I can still, after all of those years of training and practicing every day and whatever, I can still, um, I can still do that. But, but I think that's also 
kind of unique to because we talk about Beethoven, you know, I know that he wasn't all the way deaf, but he was a hearing person, obviously, before that. So um, I think a lot of times, you know, when we think about, oh, you know, he composed when he was deaf. Yes, but he he knew what sound was. It's not like he was born deaf and composed all of this music. Like he had things, as you said, to go back and reference and, you know, pull from whether they were feelings or just kind of muscle memory where you could just pull it up in your mind on what they sounded like. Well, moving on to some of my favorite people that we've we've talked to on our podcast and who I've gotten to work with just in general. Uh, Buckets and Boards joined us in season two, episode 10. And um, Gareth and Matt are, you know, two very high energy, really fun people. And uh, Gareth asked the following question what uh modern day instrument he would be most enamored with that he would most like be excited to play i think this is a really appropriate question for these guys because you know they experiment with all sorts of different types of instruments and and things that aren't even instruments making them into instruments so the idea of there's this whole world of um, of music that Beethoven never got to experience just through the evolution of instrumentation. So what what do you guys think he would be most excited about? Well, a lot of instruments have been invented, of course, yeah. since, since Beethoven. I mean, he just started to incorporate some percussion in some of his pieces and other than timpani. He just started to incorporate the piccolo and the trombones, even though the trombones have been around, you know, Mozart used trombones in a lot of his choral works, but you have the tuba, you have the saxophone, you have many, the harp was used a lot more, even though the harp had been around in orchestral music. But I'm going to say, since he was a keyboardist, I think he would have been fascinated with the celeste. It's such a, a, a beautiful, magical color that he didn't have access to. He would have had a harpsichord and he would have had the piano and not even the modern day piano for, for a lot of his lifetime. So I think that as fascinated as he was to work with the modern day piano, once that eventually became a thing, I think he would have loved the celeste and found a way to incorporate it in some of his music personally. Can you imagine hearing like, I mean, for all the piano sonatas that he wrote, hearing some kind of like beautiful kind of ethereal celeste sonata written by Beethoven? I think that would be amazing. The, the celeste sonata opus 88 number one or two <laughs> or three. Maybe he would have written multiple. Who knows? Or Stephanie, what do you think? Well, I, so I also agree with the keyboard route, but I kind of have this fantasy that Beethoven would be interested in digital music somehow, mm. um, whether through synthesizer or something just to really be able to experiment with different sounds. And, and I think that just from a, you know, a variety of sounds, but also because of his hearing loss, you know, digital digitizing music, there's a visual component to it as well, where I mean, you can actually see, you know, see the, the you know, the spikes and the and the waves of what's actually happening. And I wonder if that would be if he would have found any of that helpful. I don't maybe know. he would have become an electronica composer like, right? someone like Mason Bates. Right? Yeah, maybe maybe we'd have Bates and Beethoven concerts. That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> oh, we need to we need to trademark that because I feel like that should be a happy hour concert. Bates and Beethoven. Right? Yeah. And but with another B, bourbon. Yes, with bourbon has to go in there, of course. <laughs> Mike, what do you think? What I, what instrument would he? I don't know. Love you know, now? I mean, I, I could name all sorts of instruments. You know that that didn't exist or that 
weren't used in the orchestra so much in his time. I mean, you could think, what would Beethoven do with a theremin, you know, or some, something yeah. really off the walls. But but actually, and this is totally self-serving. Alto flute, bass flute. Well, yeah, alto flute. I, I mean, in a way, yes. I mean, I, I think <laughs> one of the fascinating things that I've often thought about is, you know, what would some of these composers have done if they had access to... Uh, more modern woodwind instruments specifically. I mean, winds in general, but yeah. you know, the woodwind instruments changed so dramatically in, you know, even the 50 years after Beethoven and, you know, the music that was written for them changed uh, as a result because they could play more chromatically, they could play more virtuosically. And, you know, Beethoven's music, when you play the flute part, it's in a way much like a, a brass part uh, because it just sort of, you know, punctuates certain moments or they're, you know, they're these wonderful melodies sometimes, but they're always, you know, just fragments of the melody that quickly get passed to somewhere else because, you know, the instruments of the time especially couldn't sustain necessarily as long a phrase as he would probably want or project over the orchestra as well as he would want. And you're kind of just moving in and out of what the strings are doing a little bit or playing some you know, thinned out version of what they're doing, except for a few examples. And those examples are on all the auditions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, I just wonder, you know, or in chamber music, especially, you know, what other chamber music might he have written for winds if he had access to a modern flute or a modern clarinet or an oboe or a bassoon, you know, it, it uh, I, I often am sad that there's, there's so many of my favorite composers uh, who probably hated writing for all these very limited instruments, you know, which are no longer limited in the same ways. Yeah, yeah. Well, guys, this actually leads us to our next question. This was also from Season 2, Episode 14. It was our final episode of Season 2, and it was with our very good friend and recording engineer extraordinaire, Mr. Tim Dixon. Let's listen to what Tim's question for Beethoven would be. In today's age, when... He has created so much influence on so many different, you know, projects, whether it's classical, whether it's pop, whether it's heavy metal, no matter what it is. I'd be interested to hear, what are you hearing now that influences you? What's that next level for Beethoven in this modern time? So let's let's take a look at that. If, if Beethoven was still with us today, what style of modern music would he listen to outside of the orchestral world to draw influence and and what would that final product look like if he incorporated some of that in his music? We already talked about electronica. That would be fascinating. Like you said, Stephanie, you could see, not just feel the vibrations, but see what he was doing. I actually think, based on a lot of the intense, heavy nature of his music, I think he would love rock and roll. Yep. I really do. And I think he would not necessarily incorporate rock instruments, but that that would influence his music. If you think about like, the thunderstorm movement of symphony number no. six or the scherzo in symphony number no. nine, some of these movements that are, or even the first movement of the fifth symphony that are just relentless and have that energy and that raw drive that rock and roll has. I think he would, he, he would get along with rock very well. And that would certainly show up in his music. I think for sure. And I'm glad that you mentioned the thunderstorm because I mean, if you think about what inspired Beethoven, obviously he, he drew influence from a lot of different things, other composers, other music, but also uh, he, he took tremendous inspiration from nature. And I wonder, you know, if, if he lived now, and depending on where he lived, but he, I think, you know, obviously the landscape has changed so much, but 
the population has changed so much and the kind of the evolution um, and industrialization of life has changed so much that I, uh, you know, I wonder what kind of influence that would have on his music, you know, not just not just the nature, but kind of just the general surrounding, you know, in a big city, what a different place like Munich is, you know, now versus then I think, um, I think his music might sound very different. See, I think, I think Beethoven would like something like, uh, like maybe techno, yeah. Because there's yes. there's something there's something very I mean Beethoven's music is not minimalist in the sense that we refer to it, you know, now, but but there's something um he has a he has a real conservation of of musical ideas in his music, right? You know, he can take three notes and turn it into, you know, the opening movement of the fifth symphony, or he could probably take three notes, turn it into an entire symphony, you know. And and there's something about that techno music, you know, when you get a a DJ going there in the, you know, club that one, one beat just sort of somehow oozes into the next and you don't even realize how you got there. And I mean that, like, I think he would be into that. You, yeah. know, you know what that reminds me of? I just yesterday, I watched a video where a guy sampled his cat making this weird, you know, this weird meow that his cat made, but it was, he sampled that and he turned it into this really amazing beat, um, you know, that he that he layered stuff on top of and he put it all together and then he wrote he wrote words to it. And it was but I could see, you know, it's this kind of the same idea where you have just something simple and small, whether it's five notes of Beethoven or a cat meowing and using, you know, the technology that we have today. I totally agree, Mike, that I could see Beethoven taking that and really running with it. Um you know, just just given what we have to work with. I agree too. As a matter of fact, I'm going to take back my answer of rock and roll and switch it to techno. I totally see what you're saying, Mike. I mean, <laughs> the 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 repetitive ostinato rhythms yeah. patterns, and he beats you over the head with it. I mean, yeah. da 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 da, or dee da da dee da da dee da da dee da da in the ninth symphony, the seventh symphony, with the da 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 da, that rhythm permeates the entire first movement. So it definitely has a groove going to it once it gets established mm -hmm. and everything kind of fits into that groove. So tech, good answer, Mike Gordon. Techno. Mike Gordon for the win. Man. Yes. Why aren't you applauding me for my my cat answer? Okay, the cat answer, okay. It was good <laughs> I mean, too. I mean, that was good. That, that was, was good. very good. I have to hear the cat meowing and then maybe I'll say yes. Okay, Stephanie, I'm going I'm to find it. Genius. Maybe the, genius. Maybe the cat video will also make it into the show notes. It probably should because <laughs> now everyone's curious about the cat meow. <laughs> Well, uh, speaking of techno music and cat meows, uh, mm -hmm. we've had the opportunity uh, to talk with several, not only living, but vibrantly flourishing composers uh, over the course of the last year plus that we've been doing this podcast. And uh, among them is our dear friend, uh, Adam Schoenberg. So let's, uh, let's have a listen to what his question was for Beethoven. So I would say, dearest Ludwig, what would be your dream project to compose if we could magically bring you back today and you were given complete and total freedom? As the majority of us composers exclusively work by way of commissions, the commissions themselves almost always have parameters such as the overall duration or, or the instrumentation or our potential theme. I'm always curious to know what composers would write if they were given the opportunity to compose any type of piece for any type of ensemble with any type of technological backing. So what would you write? Because I have a feeling it would be ridiculously spectacular. 
Yeah, what what would that dream project be? I don't know. I, I mean, I I've basically never composed a piece of music, so I don't know what my dream project would be. What 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 do you guys think? I'm gonna say a techno opera, <laughs> since for two reasons because we just established that he would probably be heavily influenced by techno, and because he only wrote one opera, Fidelio. And it wasn't really that much of a box office hit, so to say. And I think that's one of that was probably one of the regrets of his life and output that he, you know, Mozart had written amazing operas. And I think that's something that Beethoven probably always strived or wanted for himself, and he was never able to do it. But if he wrote a techno opera, maybe, maybe that one would be a big hit. Well, I wonder too if it would. You know, because when you're asking, like, what would your dream project to compose if you were given complete and total freedom? So does that mean sometimes you compose because you, you know, you're writing something uh, just because you want to write it. But I mean, when we were talking to Nico Muley about how he composes, um, he composes as his job. I mean, like, it's all about what's coming next. Like, everything is a commission, right? I mean, it's, Hmm. you know, it's so true. So I wonder if that changes it, you know, if it's complete and total freedom and you could write whatever it is that you wanted. It didn't have to be for anyone, for any specific project of any specific theme. Yeah, maybe the techno opera is exactly where he would go, but only if it stars a cat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you brought up a good point, actually, Stephanie, because uh, Mozart and Haydn were kind of restricted by what... I mean, Bach was writing for the church. Mozart and Haydn were writing for emperors or whatever court they were in. But Beethoven was one of the first composers that just was writing for himself. And like I said earlier, didn't really care what people thought about his music, even though a lot of people loved it and thought he was a genius. And now we are back in an age where there are some restrictions for composers. Most composers are getting commissions and they're writing with a very specific theme in mind or an orchestra in mind or a concerto soloist in mind. And he didn't have those restrictions so much to say. So it would be interesting if he were to fit in today's modern society and he had those restrictions, how his music might be different. I don't know. I think he would have definitely chosen to write a flute concerto. That's that actually. Well, certainly if he met Mike Gordon, he would absolutely want to write a flute concerto. He would have written a good one. I mean, he only wrote piano concertos and a violin concerto. Am I missing anything? He didn't write for any of the wind instruments. Any? Oh, he wrote a triple concerto as well for violin, cello, and piano. But he didn't write wind concertos like Mozart did. Uh, he didn't write brass concerto. I mean, no horn concertos. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah some chamber so music flute for winds. I think a flute concerto. Yeah, or or a transcription of Grosse Fugue for piccolo. Whoa, unaccompanied with for four piccolos. No, one just playing one. each part. Just one. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Playing all four parts of the Gross of Fugue? All of them. Be great. Wow. What if you just did it in like a tile style video? Because you are all about that these oh, days. Oh, good God. <laughs> you could do that. Don't, you should do that, don't Mike. Say tile I want to see the Gross of Fugue with four piccolos, you playing all four parts. That would actually be really fascinating. You know, in listening to Adam's question, though, uh, when I when I heard that, and and maybe we talked a little bit about it in the in the episode, but... You know, we're talking about if, if Beethoven lived now, what what would his dream project be? Well, maybe it wasn't even living now, but let's say it was. My question immediately went to composers now have to deal with, you know, all kinds of just limitations put on them by the orchestra that's going to perform it. So a standard orchestra um, here in the U.S. has, let's say, triple woodwinds. So only three woodwinds per section, you know, 
typically four or five horns, two or three trumpets. Um, our orchestra actually has, I, I think, one of the smaller percussion sections, um, you know, but like, so composing, um, you know, you might have freedom to compose whatever music you want, but you still have to work within the limitations of what orchestras now, you know, have to have to work with and what they have to work with as far as personnel or you know, instrumentation that's available, you know, are you going to write for a woodwind section that has three contrabassoons? Probably not, because where are you going to get the instruments? You know, things like that, I think would still exist. That is very true. Um, I mean, there are pieces that are written that have six harp parts. Yeah. There's a piece I'm thinking right now uh, by John Luther Adams that has six harp parts. And you have to hire five or maybe your orchestra carries two harp players, but most don't. Um, you're right. Anytime you write for any kind of weird instrumentation, when you write for, you know, some of our pops concerts have three saxophone parts that we have to hire outside players. Right. So anytime you have to fill up the stage with extra players, but I think Beethoven being the rule breaker that he was probably would write for yeah. three contrabassoons just because he would say, I am, I can get away with I'm it. I'm going to do I'm it. Beethoven. Have you heard my music? <laughs> three contrabassoons it is. And I don't care. I mean, you know, it's like, you don't want to play it, don't play it. That's fine. But I'm going to write yeah. it because it's what I, what I want to write. Well, uh, the final question that we, uh, we've come to in our look back over the seasons happened just recently. And it came from a wonderful guest we had just last week, actually, with Joe DeLuccio of the U.S. Marine Band, the president's own, and Joe had this to ask Beethoven. It's a bit cliche, I think. If I was going to be able to sit down with Beethoven, I'd probably say to him, you know, when you felt that your hearing was going or when you, that those dark days were coming, I mean, he was, you know, a turbulent individual, like in his, you know, life, a lot of angst and things. And I, I think I would probably say, how did you know that everything was going to just work out so seamlessly? Were you that confident in your skill level at the time that it was just going to be, everything was going to be okay? Because I think a lot of us could use that pep talk and say, when you think that <laughs> things are are rough, maybe, you know, you can forge through it somehow. So I actually... I'm curious what you guys think about this, because I'm not necessarily convinced that Beethoven was sure that everything was going to work out for him or that he had. I don't know that he was known for his inspirational attitude. Hmm. So I'm curious. I'm curious um, what you guys think, because, you know, when you're when your livelihood is based on your hearing and then you you know mike mike said it before you lose part of that so half of your livelihood your performance is out the window did he really have a positive outlook well you know it's it's interesting uh when we spoke with father paul turner he in a way alluded to this uh, same question as well he was asking he wanted to ask beethoven about his heiligenstadt testament which was this uh mm-hmm. letter that he wrote uh essentially Essentially, a suicide note. You know, in the early stages of his, uh, in the early onset of his deafness. I mean, and I think, I think it's fair to say he really didn't know where he was going to go from that point, or how he could go on, or see see a productive or or enjoyable life in his future. So I, I think, in many ways, he was as troubled by those events as. 
as any of the rest of us would be. Yeah, I'm sure he, I know he was deeply afraid, especially at the onset of the deafness, as he realized he was becoming more and more deaf. Have you guys seen um, The Sound of Metal, the movie The Sound of Metal? No, It was nominated for several Oscars this past year. Fantastic movie. I highly recommend it to all of our listeners, actually. And it's about a a heavy metal um, drummer that loses his hearing completely Hmm. and learning to adapt and wanting to continue his career, but realizing after many doctors tell him, look, it's impossible, and learning how to overcome that. It was just a fascinating, it actually made me think of Beethoven a lot as I was watching it. Really well put together movie, great, great acting, great writing. I think it's on Amazon Prime. Yep. So if you have Amazon Prime, check that check that out. It's such we a We are going to do that. That's uh, my husband will really enjoy that, I think. Yeah. And Stephanie, I think you found a quote actually uh, about Beethoven as he was becoming more and more deaf. Didn't you Oh, find I did. Some- yeah, yeah. Um I did. So um so Beethoven said, he said, "For 2 years I have avoided almost all social gatherings because it is impossible for me to say to people I am deaf." If I belong to any other profession, it would be easier, but in my profession, it is a frightful state. So I think going back to Joe's question, while I think it's a wonderful question, I wonder if instead of saying, how did you know that everything was going to work out? I might rephrase it to, did you think that everything was going to work out? You know, how did you think that it would? Because obviously it did. Yeah, it definitely helped that he was already really established in his career and very well known and very confident in himself, but it doesn't matter. It must have been... Scary beyond all belief, especially as he got to the point of almost total deafness. Yeah. Wondering if he was going to be able to continue to write as well as, well as he did. Yeah. Well, and I think in this period and, and certainly other periods a little bit later on in his life, he did go through relatively long periods where he did not produce very much music. Right. Um, you know, for one reason or another, either because of health struggles or his deafness, or certainly you have to imagine um, he suffered from great deal of just mental and emotional anguish from all this. So, you know, he did, he did go on to write, you know, a lot of incredible music, but actually you could wonder how much more he would have written if not for this, because he did have, have those long periods of drought somewhat. I mean, are, are there, are there like 10 years or so between what is it? The eighth symphony and the ninth symphony or the seventh and the eighth, yeah. something like that. There's a long, the, there's a long the gap. And the ninth. Yeah. There's a long 10 gap. years. Yeah. So imagine he writes nine symphonies, but you know, there's a 10 year period where he wrote none and he, he died when he was only what? 50, yeah. 57, 57, 56 or 57. 56 yeah. or, so relatively young. It's it's just amazing that that he could go so long actually without writing a symphony uh, when he'd written so many. So right, well, guys, we have this has been really fun to speculate all the answers to these questions that our guests have asked. So many great questions. What I've loved is that very few people have asked the same questions. We yeah. we've had forty nine episodes, I think, and we've probably had forty five different questions. There's yep. been very little overlap. But I thought it'd be cool here at the end of this episode to kind of wrap things up. If we, you know, we've always shared what our favorite drink is, and we've talked about our favorite drinks many times, but we've never answered the question, what would you ask Beethoven? So I'm curious what you guys would ask Beethoven if you had the chance. Stephanie, what would you ask him? Well, I'm kind of half answering it because I I knew this was coming up and, and we actually touched on this a little bit earlier in the episode. It's not so much a question I would ask Beethoven, but it's something I've often wondered. And it, I wonder if Beethoven had never lost his hearing 
what would his music sound like? Would he have composed the same pieces that he composed? Would they sound the same? Would they sound different? Um, you know, for example, you know, when he was composing, let's say Beethoven, his ninth symphony, would we still have the same product? Probably not. Um, but would the spirit of it still be there? I'm, I'm just really curious what that music would have been. Well, we all know his Ninth Symphony is one of his greatest accomplishments, and it was amazing and still is amazing. Do you think Absolutely. That it wouldn't have been as good? No, I don't think that. Or do you think, think it would that. have been even better? What do you think? I, I even wonder if it would exist at all in in hmm. in it at all. Like, would we even have those melodies? Or if he were, you know, had full hearing, would we have something totally different? Hmm. Mike, what would you ask him? Well, you know, I've been thinking... Um, a lot lately about, you know, the nature of concerts and the nature of the music we play and how it, you know, relates to this really uh, unique moment in time that we're in, you know, for the for the world, but of course for for live music in particular. And I've just been thinking like what what would it I wanna ask him, what is it like when the expectation at a concert is that you're gonna hear some new music, hmm. newly composed music? Um, and of course, in his time, you know, they they performed music by older or deceased composers. But the expectation was that they were going to hear some some new stuff. And of course, that's that's why Beethoven was so famous uh, in his own lifetime. And in many contexts, it's not like that now. You know, everyone wants to hear Beethoven at a concert, and and you almost have to convince them that they might also enjoy something. It was just written yesterday, hmm. and I wonder. I wonder how that affects a composer differently. Yeah. You know, when there is that level of expectation that every performance should contain something, something new, and 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 not only that, an expectation that uh, the audience will like it. Yeah. You know, and if if they don't, that means you know they didn't. They won't buy a ticket to the next one, and so it becomes you know sort of a a matter of your livelihood um, that you have to write something people will like that people will come to and yet also be innovative and you know true to yourself as an artist i just i think that must somehow create a very different mindset for a composer yeah well all music was new music we've heard that expression a lot of times and it was new music at one point and i think back to one of the concerts that he had five or six of his works on the same concert and they were all receiving their world premiere and what it must have been like to be at that concert that had his i think it was his fourth and fifth symphony a piano concerto, his Misa Solemnis, I mean, all on one program. That must have been crazy to be at that concert. I would have asked him if I had the chance to ask him anything. I actually have two questions. I'm kind of cheating. But why did you, first of all, Mike already alluded to the fact that there were 10 years in between writing his eighth symphony and his ninth symphony, yeah. 1814 and 1824. Why so long? Were, did did you purposely take time off from writing the Ninth Symphony? And why didn't you write any more after the Ninth Symphony? Did you feel like, how am I possibly going to write anything better than that? Because he lived for another three years. Mozart also did not write symphonies the last three years of his life, interestingly enough. My second question, if I could have two, would be, what do you think about the curse of the Nine Symphonies? Because after <laughs> Beethoven died... No one survived past writing their Ninth Symphony for many, many, many years. You know, Mendelssohn, Brahms, Schubert, Tchaikovsky, uh, Bruckner, Mahler, 
All of these composers wrote a maximum of nine symphonies. Mahler himself tried to cheat and called his ninth symphony Das Lied von der Erde, but it's really a symphony. And then he wrote his number nine symphony, and then he died. So even mm-hmm. he couldn't escape this curse. So I wonder what Beethoven would think about the curse of the ninth symphony that no one can outdo Beethoven. I think it took till Shostakovich, if I'm not mistaken, until we had a major composer, at least, who wrote more than nine symphonies and didn't die. Ooh, and that Shostakovich 10th symphony is good. Yes, it is. So <laughs> he finally broke the curse. I'm sure there was someone before that that I'm just not thinking of, but he's the first major composer that comes to my mind that broke that curse. Well, as you know, we like to throw in some recommended listening. And so what I'll say is in the show notes, uh, we've put together a playlist of some wonderful tunes by Beethoven, tunes inspired by Beethoven, uh, lots of great, great stuff to listen to. And of course, um, some some fun videos uh, to go along with that. So we hope you check that out in the show notes. Well, this has been a great season, and we are so appreciative of all of our listeners, everyone who's been coming out to our mobile music box concerts, watching our performances on mysymphonyseat.org, and of course, those of you who have been able to attend our first few concerts with live audience since the beginning of this pandemic. This is a great moment to binge watch all 50-some episodes of this podcast. We're going to take a few weeks off, but as the summer heats up, don't forget to check back in with us. We love taking you behind the scenes of great music and giving you a seat at our bar. Be safe and well, and we can't wait to chat with you again soon here on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. 